When I was a 12-year-old, I guess, 6th grade, um, has anybody ever seen the movie Problem Child? I, not only did I kind of look like that kid when I was 12 years old, um, but I was a lot like that kid. Um, and I was a little bit of a class clown and troublemaker in those days. And there was one particular time, uh, instance, where I, my class clownishness and my problem childishness uh, reared its ugly head in the worst possible way. I had a teacher who one day was wearing a light-colored skirt to school, and she stepped out of the room for a moment, and I had a stick of chapstick. Do you guys remember, you know, the red chapstick, the strawberry or cherry kind? And she walked out of the room, and I rolled it up, and it was like this long on, after it had been rolled all the way out, and I flicked it at one of my classmates uh, who was in the front row. And it went over his head and landed in her chair. And I could have gotten up and I could have taken it out and taken it off the chair. But I thought, you know what, I'll leave it there. This is a funny joke. I'm a 12-year-old and I'm stupid. And so I thought that was a good idea. So my teacher comes in in her light-colored skirt. She sits down and it, of course, ruins her skirt. And she asked, who did it? And she was angry. She was really angry, as she had a right to be. She said, who did it? And I didn't raise my hand. Nobody raised their hand. And it ended up, because nobody admitted to it, it forced every, my, the teacher individually interrogated every single one of my classmates. Who did it? Who did it? And most of them were strong, but one of them was weak and gave me up. And I got t- taken to the principal's office, and I continued to deny it. And my mother came to my rescue, and like a good mom, she was just doing her job. You know, she was believing in her son. I told her, I didn't do it, Mom, I didn't do it. So she was believing in me, and she came, and she had my back to the principal. She said, he said he didn't do it, he must not have done it. And, I mean, I realize now that I was betraying my mother, right? I was taking advantage of her support. I made a fool out of her. But because the majority of my class didn't rat me out, one, of, one person eventually did, and I eventually got found out for what I did. But I took advantage of my mom, my classmates, because they lied on my behalf, They were punished, and we actually had a field trip to the zoo that was canceled. The whole class, because of my stunt that I pulled. And so this stunt that I pulled humiliated my mom, it cost my classmates a field trip, and it embarrassed a really good teacher. And when I finally had nothing left to do but confess, because it was, it had, I had been found out, I found myself in an in-school suspension classroom, which is basically where they send kids who should be suspended from school, but their parents are so mad at them, they don't want them at home. So you do in-school suspension. I was in in-school suspension, and I went and I was sitting with the in-school suspension crowd around our lunch table, and I was looking at my classmates at their lunch table, and they were all just glaring at me angrily because they should have been on a field trip that day, but instead they were at school. And I remember perhaps for the first time in my life in that moment, I came face to face with just the depth of my own depravity. 
I thought to myself, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what? What have I done? And I remember thinking my stupidity had set off this chain reaction of wreckage that affected everyone I cared about at that point in my life. And this true shame and this true guilt came over me. And I just thought, what have I done? And since then, over the course of my life, there have been many other moments like this. Many much less cute. Sometimes where I've just have been face to face with my own sin and I've realized just how much destruction my own depravity can cause. And I know maybe many of you have had moments like that. Where you've thought, what in the world have I done? What have I done to my life? I've made a mess of what of my life. And the question we ask in that moment is, well, how do we respond in those moments? How do we respond when we, real, when we come face to face with the fullness of our sin and the shame that we experience? And today in Psalm 51, we're going to see a moment where King David teaches us where to turn in those types of moments. Where to turn when you've really messed it up. David says in Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, God, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. This is a psalm of repentance written by David, excuse me, after what is probably the greatest failure of his life. And this, this failure is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. And it is the story, you may have heard of it, of David and Bathsheba. And this, the setting of this story is that the army of Israel is at war. All the men of Israel had gone out to battle. And typically kings would go out to battle with their armies. But David, for whatever reason, decides to stay home while his men are out fighting. And it's, I mean, uncharacteristically cowardly of David because David has been such a strong warrior up to this point in his life. And kings were supposed to fight with their men. So we're not sure why David is not out with his men, but he's at home. And here he is, he's in the city and all the men are away. And so there's women everywhere. And David is out on his roof one night. He's sitting around perhaps playing the harp or just looking over his kingdom. And he sees Bathsheba. 
on the roof of her building, and she's bathing, she's naked, and he becomes attracted to her. And David wasn't looking to love her, he wasn't looking to care for her, he simply wanted to use her in that moment because that's what he wanted. And 2 Samuel 11 verse 4 says that David sent his messengers and they took her. And try to imagine Bathsheba in this scenario. Her husband is gone. The king's men come in and they take her. Can you imagine the fear that she experienced, the coercion that she's experienced in this moment? It's almost certainly, we don't have all the details, but it's almost certainly against her will. Or she almost certainly feels like she doesn't have a choice in the matter. And so we often say that David committed adultery, but by our modern definitions, we might categorize this as a form of rape by coercion. See, we're missing, we're certainly we're missing a lot of details about Bathsheba and her involvement in all of this. But from what we have, we see a king who leverages his authority and sends his messengers to take a woman for himself. And then a few months later, David sleeps with Bathsheba. And a few months later, she sends a messenger back to David. And the messenger says that she's pregnant. And David, thinking, okay, um, I'll fix this. And so he calls her husband, Uriah. He calls her husband off the battlefield. And Uriah, just for detail's sake, has been incredibly loyal to David. He was loyal to David before David was king. When Saul was trying to kill him, he was one of the few men that stood with him. So this is a friend to David. But David calls Uriah off the battlefield and says, Hey, you've been fighting so hard. Why don't you enjoy a weekend with your wife? And David, of course, is thinking, okay, he'll sleep with his wife. Then we can say that Uriah got his wife pregnant and then everything will be fine. And Uriah is a man of integrity. And he says, you know what? All my men are out on the battlefield. They would love to be with their wives right now. I'm not going to sleep with my wife until the battle is over. Out of, out of just solidarity with his army. And so Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife out of respect for his men. And then David thinks, okay, well, let's add a little alcohol to the mix. Maybe that'll fix some things. So he gets Uriah drunk. But still, Uriah still won't sleep with his wife out of principle. And so David is left with a conundrum. Okay, Uriah won't sleep with his wife. They're going to know something's up when they find out Bathsheba's pregnant. So what do we do? So David writes up an executive order that says that is sending, that sends Uriah to the front line of the battlefield. Meaning, sending him to certain death. David writes this letter, he signs it, he puts it in a sealed envelope, hands it to Uriah, and says, take this to your general and give it to him. And Uriah personally delivers his death sentence to his general, and is sent to the front lines and is killed. And so David thinks, okay, whew, Uriah's out of the picture. And then David, I mean, he's broken bad at this point, right? He's gone from full-on Walter White to Heisenberg at this moment. Lust, adultery, possible rape, lying, disloyalty, murder, corruption, abuse of power. And David thinks, well, you know what? Your eyes out of the picture. I think I'm going to get away with this. He marries Bathsheba. She's pregnant, and it looks like he's going to get away with it. But he doesn't. A few, about a year later, Nathan, who was kind of the pastor of Israel, he was a prophet, he was David's sort of spiritual advisor, and he comes to David and says, David, I've got a story to tell you. And David's like, I love stories. Let's hear them. And Nathan says, David, one man, there once was a man who had a little lamb, and he loved that lamb. He was a poor man, but he had one lamb, and he loved that lamb. He loved it. It was like a daughter to him. And then there was this wealthy man who had several lambs. He had several flocks and several sheep and herds. 
And he throws a dinner party, the wealthy man does, and he says, you know what, I don't want to use any of my sheep. I really like that wealthy man, that poor man's lamb over there. That's the one I want for our party. And so he coerces and takes the lamb from the poor man. Says, you know what, I'm going to take this. I'm wealthy. I have power over you. I'm going to take your lamb. We're going to use this for my party. And so the man kills the lamb, slaughters it, and and cooks it for his dinner guests. And Nathan says, what do we do with a man like this? And David says, this man has done an injustice. He deserves to die. And David still, even though he's done all these things, still has this sense of justice in his heart. See, parts of his life are still passionate for God, still passionate for justice. But other parts of his life are just oblivious to his own heart. And David says, this man deserves to die. And Nathan, who is a prophet, and we all probably need a friend like Nathan in our lives. Because Nathan looks at David and he says, David, you are that man. You took the wife of a man, the only wife he had. You abused her. You took advantage of her. And then you left the poor man out to dry by sending him to his own death. And Nathan says, David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why have you done that? And David is exposed in this moment. And he's now staring in the face of his sin. And he has nowhere to turn. He's broken and he has been caught. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And I'm not sure how much time passes between Nathan rebuking David and this psalm that was written. But you can imagine David, this event stays in his mind for a very, very long time. And he's thinking about what he's done and what the wreckage that he's caused and the death and the pregnancy and the, I mean, all of this. And like a true artist or a true poet, his emotions seep deep into his body and he just becomes so uncomfortable with them that he has to get them out and he writes a song. See, songs give weight to our experiences. And songs have a way of putting things into words that mere explanations can never express. Beethoven says that music is a higher revelation than all wisdom and poetry. James Baldwin, who you don't hear quoted in church every day, says all art is a kind of confession, more or less oblique. All artists, if they are able to survive, are forced at last to tell the entire story, to vomit the anguish up. And this is exactly what David does in Psalm 51. This, the sin in his life bubbles up to a point where he writes this song. This psalm. And David's prayer in this song that we see shows us the process of repentance and what to do when we are face to face with our own sinfulness, with our own depravity. And he follows this process that we would do well to learn from because we all find ourselves in moments where we need to confess our sin before the Lord. And the process he offers is plea for mercy, confession of sin, a plea for restoration. And then worship of a holy and gracious God. So the first thing in the process of repentance is mercy. Appealing for mercy. Look at what he says in verse 1 through 3. He says, have mercy on me, O God, David says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Will you blot out my transgressions? Will you wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin? For I know my transgressions and I know my sin is ever before me. David begins this song by saying, God, have mercy on me. 
Many of us, when we do something wrong, we start to blame shift, don't we? We try to cover up our sin. Well, it wasn't that bad. We list our past accomplishments. I'm a pretty good guy. Or we bargain with God. You know what? It was a one-time thing, God. If you, would, if you just knew the situation I was in. Or we try to explain the circumstance. David does none of this. He doesn't barter with God. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't come up with excuses. He doesn't compare himself to anybody else. He simply says to God, God, I've messed up. And I need your mercy. Because there's no other hope otherwise. Because David understands in this moment that his sin is far too great and far too large and has affected far too many people for him to gloss over it or cover it up. And one of the most fascinating things about these couple of verses here is that when David is confessing his sin, he uses every possible word for sin. In the Hebrew language, there are three words for sin. And they all have different meanings. And David uses all three of them. He says, God, will you blot out my transgressions? Which is the Hebrew word pasha. Which means, will you blot out my willful rebellion? Will you wash me from my iniquity? Which is the Hebrew word ava. Which means, God, will you wash me because I am twisted out of shape? He says, my sin is ever before me. This is the Hebrew word chata. Which means to miss the mark. He says, God, I have willfully rebelled against your word. I am twisted out of shape and I have missed the mark. And we can't miss this because David is not simply using synonyms in this song for poetic effect. He's essentially saying that these are all the different ways in which he has broken the law. He says, God, I am guilty in every fundamental sense of breaking your law. Think about it. You've got murder, adultery, lying, coveting. That's at least four commandments that he's broken in one swoop. He's guilty in his heart. He's guilty in his words. He's guilty in his thoughts, his actions. And he says, God, in fact, my very nature is sinful. And David knows that the law demands his death. He's broken all these commandments. And by law, he even said it. This man deserves to die. David knows that the death penalty is what he deserves. But he throws himself on the mercy of God. He says, yes, I am a sinner, God. But what about your mercy? I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He owns it. I can't walk my way. I can't talk my way out of this, God. I can't get rid of this sin by taking a shower or even making sacrifices. I need your mercy, God. That's my only hope is what David says. And this is something you've got to understand about repentance. Real repentance demands that we don't say to God, you know, God, it demands that we can't say, you know, God, you caught me at a bad moment. This isn't really who I am. I just messed up. Repentance requires us to say, God, you didn't catch me at a bad moment. This is who I am. See, grace and mercy can only be understood when you admit the full and weight of the depravity in your own heart and admit that you don't deserve grace or mercy. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. See, David doesn't conceal his sin. He lays it bare for all to see. Here it is, God. This is what I've done. My only hope is your mercy. He appeals for God's mercy. Second thing he does is he confesses his sin. He says, against you and you only, in verse 4, I have sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
God, I was, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner, God. And what amazes me the most about this confession here is verse 4 when he says, God, it's against you and you only that I've sinned. And I'm reading that this week. I'm like, what? Seriously? What about Bathsheba? <laughs> you destroyed her life. What about Uriah? He's dead. What about your kingdom? You've, you've corrupted it. See, sin's consequences never fall solely on the sinner. Almost always when we sin, someone else is left hurt in the wreckage. When I sin, it's not just me that is affected. It's my wife. It's my children. It's my church. See, David knew that his sin caused destruction in other people's lives. But David also realized something that I believe we often fail to see when we sin. And that is that our sin always begins, first and foremost, as a sin against God before it affects others. See, true confession requires this understanding. As David's sin progressed, as this whole episode played out, more people were certainly brought into the wreckage. But this whole thing, this thing did not begin in a bedroom with Bathsheba. It started on the roof in his mind. See, he looked upon something that wasn't his, and he lusted and coveted after this woman. And God had given him a wife. And his first sin was, his first sin was against God. He said, God, you've given me all these things, but it's not enough. I need that. I need her. God, I know you've blessed me with all these things. I know you've done, been so gracious to me, but I really need her. That's what I need in this moment. And so, yes, David committed adultery. But his sin began when he failed to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not when he laid in a bed with Bathsheba. His sin began as an act against the will of God. And I think the best way to understand this about David saying, against you and you only I've sinned, is when I get angry with my kids... When I get frustrated with my kids and I yell at them or I sort of take my anger out on them, when I have a moment to calm down, the shame that I feel in those moments almost always is not toward my children. It's before God. Because I think to myself, God, why would I get so upset with these precious gifts that you've given me? Now, I have to go and repent to my kids. But I know that in that moment, I have completely rebelled against God. I've completely taken advantage of a gift that he's given to me. And I think I've, it's, it's against you I've sinned against God. And David sees the truth of his sin in this moment. He says, it's against you, God, that I sinned. And David's not minimizing the pain that he caused others. But rather, he's going to the source of his sin. And he's saying, God, if I'm going to confess of anything, I've got to confess at the source. And say, God, I sinned against you first and foremost. And now I can go make amends with those that I've hurt. That's his confession. But then it takes this... Sharp term in, in verse 6. David says, he makes a plea for restoration and renewal. He says, Behold God, you delight in the truth of your inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David says, I need your mercy, God. I'm confessing my sin. But then he shifts and he says, God, restore me. Cleanse me. Give me a new heart. Wash me. Do it with hyssop. Hyssop at the time was used to clean lepers. That's what they would bathe lepers with. And lepers were the most unclean people in this society. And so hyssop was seen as like, that's like the deep scrub. Like that's getting it all out. And he says, will you cleanse me with hyssop? David's admitting that his sin is like he's a leper. I'm as unclean as it gets, God. I need need the greatest possible cleansing that you can give me. But more importantly than cleansing lepers, hyssop is actually what was used to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorposts in the Exodus account. In the scripture, in the Exodus account, the angel of death passed over all the people in Egypt. But God said that if you put the blood of an innocent lamb above your doorstep, the angel of death will pass over and the firstborn will not die. Which is an allusion to Christ, whose blood would rescue us from death. And so David says, will you cleanse me with his soap? Will you protect me from death? Because I know that's what I deserve. And David says, if you do this, I will be whiter than snow. And David actually coins this phrase. We sing it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Wash me white as snow. David coined this phrase. White as snow. See, there's no precedent for this. What David has just asked for. David believed, because of God's faithfulness to him in the past, David believed that God could cleanse him to a point where it would be as if he never sinned in the first place. David believed that God could cleanse him and restore him and renew him and make him fully whole. And he says, heal me, restore me. And he says something incredibly fascinating, which at the time would have been shocking. He says, God, blot out my iniquities. Blot it all out. Wash me, cleanse me, take it away. And this doesn't sound um, foreign to us because we're familiar with verses like 1 John 1.9 that say if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ephesians 1.7, we're familiar with this, that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. But at this time, this idea of being completely forgiven of your sins... Only by the mercy of God, this would have been foreign. And it would have been presuming upon God's grace. See, David asked God to do something that God had never done in recorded history up to this point. David goes out on a limb and says, God, I've messed up. But what about your mercy? See, before this point, typically sinners were attached to their sin. When God wipes out sin in the Old Testament before David, he usually does it by wiping out the sinner. Genesis 6, God sends a flood and blots out sin from the world by blotting out humanity. The Tower of Babel, man sinned against God and God scattered them away. Up to this point, when sin escalates, God starts over with humanity. But David asks, God, is it possible that according to your love that you can blot out my sin, but not blot me out? Is that possible? Is it possible to kill my sin, but still leave me whole? And this opens up a theme that will now play itself out all throughout the Scriptures, where God punishes sin, but restores the sinner. Isaiah 6, God touches Isaiah's lips with the burning coals of his wrath, but it leaves him whole. And God says, Isaiah, your guilt is taken away. 
Finally, on the cross, God punishes one man himself so that others could be saved from the penalty of their sin. See, through Christ, we have the answer to David's prayer. Yes, there is a way in which God can blot out our sin and leave us whole. This is called restoration and renewal, and it only comes through Jesus. See, you cannot move to the, in the process of repentance until you understand this. See, many of us often view repentance either as the guy in Times Square standing on a soapbox telling us repent or die, and it sort of becomes this kind of Ned Flanders-ish kind of thing that we look at. Or we view repentance as, God, I'm really sorry. What can I do to make it right? How many days in a row, God, without a mistake, do I need to go before I can talk to you again? What prayer do I need to pray? What, we, what do I need to do? What do I need to tithe to the church? What do I need to give? What do I need to do? See, we often put the process of restoration into our own hands. We think, God, what do I have to do to restore myself before you? And when you do that, you can never fully trust, love, cherish, or worship God because you'll never know if you've done enough to make yourself whole before Him. But the message of Jesus' mercy is that He restores, He forgives. Then the call then, when you've been restored, is to stand back up and keep following Him. Years ago, I had a, when I was pastoring um, in a college town, a college-age guy came into my office and he had done something that was just weighing on his heart. He had committed a sin and was just broken over it. And he comes in, sits in my office. I could tell he had been crying all morning. And he says, Will, what do I do? I said, man, you throw yourself on God's mercy and you receive His forgiveness. And you thank God for Jesus who paid for that sin so that you don't have to pay for it. And he said, well, I have repented and I have asked for forgiveness, but what do I do now? How do I make it right? And I went back and said the same thing. I said, you throw yourself on God's mercy, you receive his forgiveness, and then you thank God for Jesus who paid for that sin so that you don't have to. He said, I've already done those things, but what, do I, what else do I need to do? And I said it again. <laughs> you throw yourself on God's mercy and you receive his forgiveness. And you thank God for Jesus who paid for that sin so that you don't have to. See, this young man wasn't fully convinced that Jesus had fully forgiven him. He thought that maybe Jesus forgave halfway and then we make up for the rest. And see, in his mind, the cross wasn't enough to cover his sin. He felt like he had to add something to that. And as we learned when we studied Galatians, Jesus plus anything else is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing else. See, you can never add to the mercy of God, so you must stop trying. You receive His grace. And then you stand up, knowing that you've been cleansed, restored, renewed, and you continue walking toward Him. See, God's grace was meant to be rested in, not earned. See, in your darkest moment, in your darkest sin, God is calling you to do exactly what David did. To throw yourself on the mercy of God who in Christ has covered all of your sin. He has blotted out your sin but still kept you whole. He has cleansed you and restored you. And the call of Jesus then is to believe that, receive that, and then respond with a life of worship. And this is the final step of repentance. Because if your repentance doesn't lead you to worship, 
perhaps you haven't fully received the restoration of Jesus, go back to step three and do it until you get it. But once you grapple and wrestle and receive the fact that you've been restored by Jesus, then you can say as, Jesus, as David did. Now God, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open up my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God that you're looking for. Are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. That, O God, you will not despise. And David, his prayer, his song begins with a plea for healing and restoration and mercy. And it ends with an assurance of hope. See, David's hope toward God is rekindled when he experiences the mercy of God. And David says, God, if you can do this for me, blot out my sin but leave me whole. Other people in this kingdom will see your power and your grace. And others will see that you are good and you're kind. And they will follow you because you can do this for me. And they'll know that you can do this for them. He says, God, wouldn't it be amazing if word got out that you didn't just judge people, but you forgave and healed and restored us? What if people began to hear stories about God willing to restore even the worst of sinners, sinners like David? And David says, God, if you restore me, I will tell others about it. And they will worship you for your goodness. See, for David, forgiveness and restoration results in evangelism and worship. Forgiveness creates an insatiable desire to tell others about the mercies of God. So our mission mission statement as a church is knowing Christ through the scriptures, growing together as a family, and going into the world to make disciples of Jesus. And those first two, you've got to get those first two before you can do the third. But if you get the first two, if you know Jesus through the scriptures, that he's loving, kind, merciful, he eats with sinners, he heals the broken, he forgives prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors. If you know Jesus as he is in the scriptures, and then you grow together with God's people, that will create in you an understanding that your sin has been forgiven, that your grace has been, that God's grace has been restored in you, then that leads to your ability to go into the world and make disciples of Jesus. Once again, you've got to get step one and two before you can go to three. But David says, I'm learning about you, God, through your word. And now I'm going to go into the world and tell others about you. And so if you came in here today and you're bringing sin, you're bringing shame, or you're bringing a past that you still haven't quite laid at the feet of Jesus, the message of the gospel is to give it to him, He will trade you your sin for His death and His life and His resurrection. He will give you life. You will give give Him your death and He will give you His life. And when He does that and restores you and blots out your sin but leaves you whole, then you have a song to sing like David. You have a worship to give. And you can leave this place receiving the mercy of God and you go and tell others about the mercy of God. See, David, he's not a hero in this story as he's been the last several weeks. He's no foreshadow of Jesus here. Like he often has been in the past. Today, he looks a lot like you and me. And perhaps even worse. But God forgives him, not because of David deserved it, because David didn't. God forgave him because God loves sinners. And if God can forgive a, and restore a murderer and an adulterer and a liar and someone who abuses power, he can forgive you. 
But His forgiveness of you is not meant solely for you to be cleaned up for your own sake. God cleans us up so that He can send us out. I think of Zacchaeus. God forgave Zacchaeus, the wee, wee, wee little man. The tax collector who stole from all of God's people. And when God forgave Zacchaeus, He sent him out of his home. And Zacchaeus went out and he started spilling out generosity toward others. The demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, God heals him and he becomes a preacher. Saul persecutes Christians, murders Christians, stones Stephen to death, the first martyr. And God forgives him for, for killing Christians and makes him a missionary. See, in the Bible, it's prostitutes, murderers, thieves, gluttons, and drunkards who become the people that God uses to tell the world about the love of Jesus. You're not too messed up to be a missionary. And you're not too messed up to tell of the love of Christ to the people in your building or in your family. Some of you in this room, you need to be healed. You need to be restored. And we often say that the church is like a hospital for you. We want the church to be a place where we can heal your wounds with the gospel of Jesus. But you don't get to stay in that hospital bed forever, you know? (laughs) Once you're healed, there is now a call to go and heal others. This is why Tom today is going to close out our service with the Great Commission. Go into the world and make disciples. God has given you grace so that you can show grace to others. God has restored us so that we can restore others back to Him. Be agents of reconciliation. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to take a time of communion.